Good morning. Grandma B here. I'm sorry I haven't been on in quite a while. Thought I'd better check in and let you know that I'm here. If you need me, feel free to call me. So I'm reading in my book again. I'm studying. The Family Gamble is where I'm at now. Harold, I didn't know if you was ever coming back. I stayed and waited there for five years before I woke up one morning and decided that you was dead. Even if you weren't, you was dead to me. I wasn't going to carry you with me no more, so I killed you in my heart. I buried you, I mourned you, and then I picked up what was left and went on to make life without you. And that was written by August Wilson, Joe Turner's Come and Gone. It was from a book. Somebody had written that. It's kind of Sounds like bad English to me, but I'm not really sure. So family members facing a painful loss cannot deny forever that something has changed. Eventually, they are pressured by a relative, a friend, or by circumstances themselves to define the status of the missing person one way or the other. The family then makes their best guess based on the available information as to the probable outcome of their unclear loss. Is a son and brother missing in action in Vietnam likely to return home after 25 years? Is a father diagnosed with an inoperable tumor going to die? Will an adopted child benefit from a reunion with the biological mother or father? Will a missing father ever return? I call this the family gamble. This judgment call is risky. Consider the family who gambles that the father is going to die. As a result of this conclusion, They close him out of their activities as though he's already dead. When the father goes into remission and lives, the family has to reorganize in order to take him back in again. Even with a positive outcome, the constant reordering of the family system is stressful. A family member is in, then out, then in again. If by contrast the family gambles and the father is going to live, making no preparations for loss or change, and then he dies, they also have to reorganize to let him go. Despite the uncertainty of their decision, however, a family is always better off making an educated guess about the status of their loss rather than continuing indefinitely in limbo. The family gamble 
is one way to get off the emotional roller coaster of ambiguous loss. Sometimes the family gamble pays off. Mrs. Lund visited her young comatose husband in a nursing home every day for five years. He had fallen from a horse and hit his head. When you hear me squeeze my hand, she'd say, even though doctors offered little hope that her husband would wake up. Each day she talked to him about their children and the details of country life. One day she was finally rewarded. He squeezed her hand. Gradually her husband returned to normal and has since come home. But the family gambles do not always end this way, nor do many people have the strength and determination to wait so patiently for so long. Such stories of miraculous recoveries in newspapers and magazines give hope to those who wait for things to return to the way they were rather than adapting to a changed reality. Mrs. Lund, Mrs. Lund's long shot surprisingly paid off, but stories of ambiguous loss rarely end so well. Sometimes families make a strong, uh, make the wrong decision, and others, out of fear of doing the same, refuse to take any risks at all. After years of searching for Mateo Shabag, a soldier declared missing in action, his family decided to give him up as dead. They asked the government to change his status from MIA to presumed killed in action. His name on the Vietnam War Memorial was then preceded by a cross indicating that he was dead. But after 26 years, Sabak returned, turned up in a social security office in Georgia, where he was applying for benefits. Turned out that he'd finished his tour in Vietnam in 1970, but never arrived home in Georgia. Some people in California found him wandering and took him in, and he stayed with them for 26 years. Regrettably, a cross still precedes his name at the Vietnam Memorial. But the official records are clear. They have been corrected to reflect that he was found. Though it is unlikely that other missing soldiers will return, families often cling to such stories while at the same time recognizing that the odds are against them. In other cases, families are left wondering if they made the right decision, particularly when an illness or other period of waiting continues for a long time. A Texas father, with the help of his two adult daughters, decided to care for his wife at home. She was in the last stages of Alzheimer's disease, and in addition to having difficulty swallowing food, she had pneumonia. He wasn't ready to let her go, 
but he also admitted I feel bad about my girls giving up so much of their life if it wasn't for the situation at home my older daughter would be married right now his younger daughter who dropped out of college to come home and help and who has no boyfriend was also concerned about her father as she was about her mother i worry about him coming out of this and finding a reason to keep going the gamble here is that two young adults who put things on hold to care for a dying parent may miss out on their own lives their father is uh, hoping his daughters will be able to readjust and resume normal social lives once they no longer have to care for their mother but his concern lingers gambling in absolute positions of either optimism or pessimism is risky but when the odds of a favorable outcome are high family members should be encouraged to embrace hope acting as if the losses retrievable in 1980 therapists used information gleaned from interviews with the families of prisoners of war and missing men to develop guidelines for working with the families of the Iranian hostages since it was generally believed that the hostages would be safely returned from Iran Their families were advised to continue to act as if their missing loved ones were still present. To buy gifts for birthdays and holidays, to audio or videotape all family celebrations, and to think of their family member as still in the family, so that when the hostages returned, their reintegration into family life would go smoothly. The families kept their boundaries symbolically open to minimize the loss for all concerned and proceeded as if their loved ones would return the gamble worked on january 20th 1981 all of the americans came home safely after spending 444 days as hostages in tehran but when the probability of recovery is slim as it is with alzheimer's terminal cancer huntington's disease or full-blown case of aids it may be less reasonable to gamble on either extreme on either treating the loss as complete or acting as if nothing has changed a gradual process of letting go is the healthiest approach in such situations some aspects of the missing person are lost forever while others are very much present the task for families to remain aware of the difference neither the patients nor their loved ones are served by not living to the fullest their remaining days together connecting where they still can before saying the final goodbye children of patients with early onset of alzheimers and other heritable diseases live in the sobering possibilities that they 
will get their parents' disease. The younger son of the airplane pilot who developed Alzheimer's at the age of 40 says, there's not much chance at all that I'm going to get it. There is not a day or an hour in my life right now that I don't think about it. How am I going to start a family? Am I going to put my wife through what mom is going through right now? Should I have kids? Should I even get married? His cousin, who is a young woman who quit college to take care of her mom, is more positive. I just want to grab on to what comes along. But what if I really love someone? I can't imagine giving all that stuff up. I'll quit for now and continue later. Certainly it's hard for people to stay positive when someone in their family is just missing. Thank you for listening. which means take. It is Numbers 421-2789. Adonai, said to Moses, take a sentence of the descendants of Gershon, also by clans and families. Count all those between 30 and 50, all who will enter the core doing the work of serving the tent of meeting. The Gershon families are to be responsible for serving and for transporting loads. They are to carry the curtains of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, its covering, the fine leather covering above it, the screen for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the tapestries for the courtyard, and the screen for the entrance to the courtyard by the tabernacle and around the altar, along with the ropes and all the utensils they need for their service. And they are to do the work connected with these things. Aaron and his sons are to supervise all the work of the Gershon clan in transporting loads and serving and to assign them who is to carry what. This is how the Gershon families are to serve in the tent of meeting, and they are to be under the direction of Itamar, the son of Aaron the Cohen. As for the descendants of Merari, take a census by clans and families of all those between 30 and 50 years old, all who will be in the corps doing the work of serving in the tent of meeting. Their service for the tent of meeting will be to carry their frames, crossbars, posts, and sockets of the tabernacle. Also, the posts for the surrounding courtyard with their sockets, tent pegs, ropes, and other accessories and everything having to do with their service. 
You are to assign particular loads to specific persons by name. This is how the Maori families are to serve in the tent of meeting, directed by Itamar, the son of Aaron the Cohen. Moses, Aaron, and the community leaders took a census of the descendants of Kahat by their clans and families. All those between 30 and 50 years old who were part of the corps serving in the tent of meeting registered. By their families, they numbered 2,750. These are the ones counted from the Kahat families of all those serving in the Tenemi, whom Moses and Aaron enumerated, in keeping with the order given by Adonai through Moses. The census of the descendants of Gershon by their clans and families all those between 30 and 50 years old who were part of the Corps serving in the Tent of Meeting yielded 2,630, registered by their clans and families. These are the ones counted from the families of the descendants of Gershon, of all those serving in the Tent of Meeting whom Moses and Aaron enumerated in keeping with the order given by Adonai. The census of the families of the descendants of Merari by their clans and families, all those between 30 and 50 years old who are part of the Corps serving in the tenor meeting, yielded 3,200 registered by their families. These are the ones counted from the families of the descendants of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron enumerated, in keeping with the order given by Adonai through Moses. The census of Levi, whom Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel enumerated by their clans and families, all those between 30 and 50 years old, who were part of those working to serve and working to carry loads in the tent of meeting, yielded a total of 8,580 persons. According to Adonai's order, they were appointed by Moses, each one to his specific service or work. They were also enumerated as Adonai had ordered Moses. Adonai said to Moses, Order the people of Israel to expel from the camp everyone who has leprosy, everyone with a discharge, and whoever is unclean because of touching a corpse. But ma both male and female you must expel. Put them outside the camp so that they won't defile their camp where I live among you, the people of Israel, did this and put them outside the camp, the people of Israel did what Adonai had said to Moses. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, when a man or woman commits any kind of sin against another person and thus breaks faith with Adonai, he incurs guilt. He must confess the sin which he has committed and he must make full restitution for his guilt. Add 20% and give it 
to the victim of his sin. But if the person is no relative to whom restitution can be made for the guilt, then what is given in restitution for guilt will belong to Adonai, that is, to the Kohen. In addition to the ram of atonement, through which atonement is made for him. Every contribution which the people of Israel consecrate and present to the Kohen will belong to him. Anything an individual consecrates will be his own to allocate among the Kohen. But what a person gives to the Kohen will belong to him. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, that is, if another man goes to bed with her without her husband's knowledge, so that she becomes impure secretly, and there is no witness against her, and she was not caught in the act, then, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, and she has become impure, or, for that matter, If the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife and she has not become impure, he is to bring his wife to the cone along with the offering for her. Two quarts of barley flour on which he has not poured olive oil or put frankincense because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a grain offering for remembering, for recalling guilt to mind. The Kohen will bring her forward and place her before Adonai. The Kohen will put holy water in a clay pot. And then the Kohen will take some of the dust on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. The Kohen will place the woman before Adonai, unbind the woman's hair and put the grain offering for remembering in her hands. The grain offering for jealousy. While the Kohen has in his hand the water of embitterment and cursing. The Cohen will make her swear by saying to her, If no man has gone to bed with you, if you have not gone astray to make yourself unclean while under your husband's authority, then be free from this water of embitterment and cursing. But if you have in fact gone astray while under your husband's authority and become unclean, because some man other than your husband has gone to bed with you. Then the cone is to make the woman swear with an oath that includes a curse. The cone will say to the woman, May Adonai make you an object of cursing and condemnation among your people by making your private parts shrivel and your abdomen swell up. May this water that causes the curse go up into your inner parts and make your abdomen swell and your private parts swivel up. And the woman is to respond, Amen, Amen. The cone is to write these curses on a scroll, wash them off into the water of embitterment and make the woman drink the water of embitterment and cursing. The water of cursing will enter her and become bitter. Then the cone is to remove the grain offering for jealousy from the woman's hand. Wave the grain offering before Adonai and bring it to the altar. 
the Cohen is to take a handful of the grain offering as its reminder portion and make it go up and smoke on the altar. Afterward, he is to make the woman drink the water. <clears throat> when he has made her drink the water, then, if she is unclean and has been unfaithful to her husband, the water that causes the curse will enter her and become bitter so that her abdomen swells and her private parts shrivel up and the woman will become an object of cursing among her people. But if the woman is not unclean, but clean, then she will be innocent and will have children. This is the law for jealousy. When either a wife under her husband's authority goes astray and becomes unclean, or the spirit of jealousy comes over a husband and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he is to place the woman before Adonai and the Kohen is to deal with her in accordance with all of this law. The husband will be clear of guilt, but the wife will bear the consequences of her guilt. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, when either a man or a woman makes a special kind of vow, the vow of the Nazir, consecrating himself to Adonai, he is to abstain from wine and other intoxicating liquor. <coughs> He's not to drink vinegar from either source, He's not to drink grape juice. He's not to eat grapes or raisins. As long as he remains a Nazier, he is to eat nothing derived from the grapevine, not even the grape skins or the seeds. Throughout the period of his vow as Nazir, he is not to shave his head until the end of the time for which he has consecrated himself to Adonai, he is to be holy. He is to let the hair on his head grow long. Throughout the period for which he has consecrated himself to Adonai, he's not to approach a corpse. He's not to make himself unclean for his father, mother, brother, or sister when they die since his consecration to God is on his head throughout the time of his being Nazir, he is holy for Adonai. If someone next to him dies very suddenly so that he defiles his consecrated head, then he is to shave his head on the day of his purification. He is to shave it on the seventh day. On the eighth day, he is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Kohen at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The Kohen is to prepare one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and thus make atonement for him inasmuch as he sinned because of the dead person. That same day, he is to reconsecrate his head he is to consecrate to Adonai the full period of his being a Nazir by bringing male lamb in his first year's a guilt offering. The previous days will not be counted because his consecration 
became defiled. This is the law for the Nazi year when his period of consecration is over. He is to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting where he will present his offering to Adonai, one male lamb in its first year without defect as a burnt offering, one female lamb in its first year without defect as a sin offering, one ram without defect as a peace offering, a basket of matzah loaves made of fine flour mixed with olive oil, unleavened wafers spread with olive oil, their green offering and their drink offerings. The Kohen is to bring them before Adonai, offer his sin offering, his burnt offering, and his ram as a sacrifice for peace offerings to Adonai with the basket of matzah. The Kohen will also offer the grain offering and drink offering that go with the peace offering. The Nazir will shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting Take the hair removed from his consecrated head, put it on the fire under the sacrifice of peace offerings. When the ram has been boiled, the cone is to take its shoulder, one loaf of matzah from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and place them in the hands of the Nazir. After he has shaved his consecrated head, Cohen is to wave them as a wave offering before Adonai. This is set aside for the Cohen, along with the breast for waving and the raised up thigh. Following that, the Nazir may drink wine. This is the law for the Nazir, who makes a vow and pours offering to Adonai for his being a Nazir. In addition to anything more for which he has sufficient means, in keeping with whatever vow he makes, he must do it according to the law for the Nazir. And I interject that you know the story of the big strong guy. Samson. Samson. Samson was a Nazir. Yes, he was. Adonai said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and tell them that this is how you are to bless the people of Israel. You are to say to them, May Adonai bless you and keep you. May Adonai make his face shine on you and show you his favor. May Adonai lift up his face toward you and give you peace. In this way, they are to put my name on the people of Israel so that I will bless them. On the day Moses finished putting up the tabernacle, he anointed and consecrated it, all his furnishings, and the altar with its utensils. After anointing and consecrating them, the leaders of Israel, who were heads of their father's clans, made an offering. These were tribal leaders in charge of those counted in the census. They brought their offering before Adonai, six covered wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two leaders and for each an ox, and presented them in front of the tabernacle. 
Adonai said to Moses, Receive these from them. They are to be used for the service in the tent of meeting. Give them to the Levi, to each as needed for his duties. So Moses took the wagon, wagons and oxen and gave them to the Levi. He gave two wagons and four oxen to the descendants of Gershon in keeping with the needs of their duties. Four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the descendants of Maari in keeping with the needs of their duties, directed by Itamar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen. But to the descendants of Karat, he gave none, because their duties involved the holy articles, which they carried on their own shoulders. The leaders brought the offering for dedicating the altar on the day it was anointed. The leaders brought their offering before the altar. And Adonai said to Moses, They are to present their offerings to dedicate the altar, each leader on his own day. Naxon, the son of Amivada, from the tribe of Judah, presented his offering on the first day. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels and one silver basin of 70 shekels both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in the first year. This was the offering of Naxon, the son of Amivida. On the second day, Nathaniel, the son of Tezuar, leader of Issachar, presented his offering. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, three and a quarter pounds, and one silver basin of 70 shekels, using the sanctuary shekel, one and three quarter pounds, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of ten shekels, one quarter pound, full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nathaniel, the son of Tezuar. On the third day, Eliab, the son of Helon, leader of Zebulun, presented his offering. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels and one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five ram, five male goats, and five male lamb in their first year. This was the offering of Elibadab, the son of Elan. On the fourth day, it was Eliezer, the son of Shadowur, leader of the descendants of Reuben, 
He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in the first year. This was the offering of Elitra, the son of Shedahor. On the fifth day was Shlumlael, the son of Zodusidai, leader of the descendants of Simon. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering. One gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense. One young bull, one ram, one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering. One male goat as a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in the first year. This was the offering of Shulumo, the son of Tutsivlada. On the sixth day, was Elasaph, the son of Deuel, leader of the descendants of Gad. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels and one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Elasaph, the son of the Uyel. On the seventh day was Elishama, the son of Amehud, leader of the descendants of Ephraim. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels and one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in the first year. This was the offering of Eshilama, the son of Amihud. On the eighth day was Gamliel, the son of Kedatzer, <coughs> leader of the descendants of Manasseh. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels and one silver basin of 70 shekels. Both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering, oh, excuse me, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Gamaliel, the son of Adatra. On the ninth day was 
Apidan, the son of Gidoni, leader of the descendants of Benjamin. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for the grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb, his first year is a burnt offering. One male goat is a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Abidon, the son of Gadoni. On the tenth day was Achizir, son of Amashadai leader of the descendants of Dan. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels and one silver basin of 70 shekels, bowl full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for the grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Achizier, the son of Amishadai. On the eleventh day was Pagliel, the son of Akram, leader of the descendants of Asher. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb as first year's burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in the first year. This was the offering of Pakleel, the son of Akram. On the twelfth day was Achira, the son of Enan, leader of the descendants of Natali. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels and one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain of one gold pan of 10 shekels, full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb, and his first year's a burnt offering one male goat as a sinner, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Acherah, the son of Enan. This was the offering for dedicating the altar which was given by the leaders of Israel on the day of its anointing. Twelve silver dishes, Twelve silver basins, twelve gold pans. Each silver dish weighed 130 shekels. And each basin, 70 shekels. All the silver of the vessels weighed 2,400 shekels. The twelve gold pans full of incense weighed 10 shekels apiece. All the gold of the pans weighed 120 shekels. The livestock 
for the burnt offering consisted of 12 bulls, 12 rams, 12 male lambs in the first year with their grain offering. <coughs> Excuse me. There were 12 male goats for a sin offering. The livestock for the sacrifice of peace offerings consisted of 24 bulls, 60 rams, 60 male goats, and 60 male lambs in their first year. This was the offering for dedicating the altar after it had been anointed. When Moses went into the tent of meeting in order to speak with Adonai, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the ark cover on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and he spoke to him. Thank you, Father God, for helping us to overcome the power outage on this Shabbat. Uh, thank you, Father, for um, giving us the strength to read even when we didn't have any electricity. We're sitting here by candlelight and it has been pretty enjoyable. And we trust that all things happen for a reason. And all of a sudden, outside, we see it's almost like it's light out, like it's the daytime, and it's the rain is coming down very hard. Thank you, Father God. Help us to enjoy this evening, and we will finish the parashah tomorrow morning. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Yes, it is Shabbat. And yes, I am here. And I am, for some reason, feeling some ambiguous loss this morning. So I thought I'd read a little and see if I could improve my attitude. I know last night we had a, another storm. We've been storming for two weeks now. And uh, the power actually went out for, gosh, at least an hour, it seemed like. But uh, when we um, got a little frustrated, we decided to do read our parashah by candlelight. And it actually helped us to be strong. And it helped us to um, endure. And before we knew it, the power came back on. So... I left off at the family gamble. Gambling on absolute positions of either optimism or pessimism is risky. But when the odds of a favorable outcome are high, family members should be encouraged to embrace hope. Acting as if the loss is retrievable. In 1980, therapists used information gleamed from interviews with the families of prisoners of war and missing men to develop guidelines for working with the families of the Iranian hostages. Since it was generally believed that the hostages would be safely returned from Iran, their families were advised to continue to act 
as if their missing loved ones were still present. To buy gifts for birthdays, holidays, to audio or videotape all family celebrations, and to think of their family member as still in the family, so that when the hostages returned, their reintegration into family life would go smoothly. The families kept their boundaries symbolically open to minimize the loss for all concerned and proceeded as if their loved ones would return. The gamble worked. On January 20th, 1981, all of the Americans came home safely after spending 444 days as hostages in Tehran. But when the probability of recovery is slim, as is as if with Alzheimer's, terminal cancers, Huntington's disease, or a full-blown case of AIDS, it may be less reasonable to gamble on either extreme. On either treating the loss as complete or acting as if nothing has happened. The gradual process of letting go is the healthiest approach in such situations. Some aspects of the missing person are lost forever while others are very much present. The task for families is to remain aware of the difference. Neither of the patients nor their loved ones are served by not living to the fullest their remaining days together, connecting where they still can before saying a final goodbye. Children of patients with early onset of Alzheimer's and other other irreversible diseases live with the sobering possibilities that they will get their patient's disease. The younger son of an airline pilot who developed Alzheimer's at the age of 40 says, there's not much chance at all that I'm going to get it. There's not a day or an hour in my life right now that I don't think about it. How I'm going to start, how am I going to start a family? Am I going to be put, am I going to put my wife through what mom is going through now? Should I have kids? Should I even get married? His cousin who is a young woman who quit college to take care of her mom, is more positive. I just want to grab on to what comes along. But what if I really love someone? I can't imagine giving all that stuff up. And then there are those for whom the pain is so immobilizing that they are not even ready to take a risk. Another of the pilot's young sons 
was having a hard time. His mother explained. He just can't handle it. It upsets him too much. Even talking about insurance and a living will. Seeing his aunt that way and knowing in his heart that's what we have to look forward to with his father for sure and perhaps for himself, his brother and his cousin, upsets him too much. As he watched his father, he could still eat, who could still eat, walk, eat and walk. His son said to his cousin, I can't stick around. I can't see him on a day-to-day basis if he was as sick as your mom. It would tear me up. My dad and I were real close and it just tears me up to watch it and I can't handle it anymore. Note that the son mixes his tenses using both past and present. A common indication of confusion about the status of a loved one who is still present, but also partly gone. The family gamble in such situation also affects the medical team caring for the patient. The family of a late-stage Alzheimer patient who has pneumonia for the second time is angry when the doctors discourage heroic efforts. That's the way doctors are. It is not worth their time if there is not a life to be saved, even though... It's a life to us, says Wes's wife. Some families insist on treatments to keep their loved one alive, despite knowing that the illness is terminal. They are simply not ready to say the final goodbye. Wes's wife expresses her frustration. It makes me so mad that there's nothing we can do. The doctors don't seem to care. They feel like it's hopeless, so they just give up. She cuddles next to her demented husband, knowing that soon she will have to make a life and death decisions. But for now, she gets comfort from being close to him, his this man who is still her husband, but not a man, not the man she married. For families of people who are missing psychologically or physically, this process of gradually letting go is especially difficult because it has to take place exclusively in their minds. Just as Wes's wife knows that she, not the medical staff, will ultimately have to make the difficult decisions about her husband's life and death, the wives of missing soldiers who had no one to clarify their husband's status as dead or alive had to do so for themselves. The wife was truly gambling when she finally asked for an official change in her husband's status from missing in action to presumed killed in action. From, for there is always a possibility that he could still be alive somewhere and return home unexpectedly. Deciding to write the letter to Washington requesting that her husband's status be changed must have been very difficult. Not unlike what family members of Alzheimer patients experience when they decide to request that no 
resurrection or heroic efforts be used anymore to keep their loved one alive. The the sociologist Irving Goffman has written that for events like death, someone outside the family, such a coroner, will document the event and make it official. The family should not be expected to perform that role, but Goffman did not consider the plight of families with ambiguous losses. They are increasingly asked to do just that, to decide on the life and death of a loved one. For many, this is a task beyond human comprehension. For others, it is a risk they take in order to move on with their own lives. More subtle versions of the family gamble take place in the ordinary transitions of family life. When children grow up and leave home, their status is as in or out of the family is often confusing. Parents' best move in such situation is to define their children's status as somewhere between absent and present, as did one father whose son left home for college and then returned. Since December, we've been in an odd sort of going, going, gone limbo. He's here, but he shouldn't be. He's here, but he won't be. And when he goes, when he does go, he won't go far. Nobody at this address was prepared for that. We were prepared for lower food bills and higher phone bills. An empty chair at Thanksgiving and an emotional welcome home at Christmas. We were prepared for what didn't happen. We're still trying to adjust to what did. Still trying to figure out what the rules and expectations should be. The old ones don't make much sense. The new ones will be in force only for a short while. What should this, his curfew be? Should he buy his own clothes? How about chores? He may not be a student, but he's not a lodger either. He is on a deferral. Or is he on a continuance? Neither we nor he is sure. He's here, and yet he's not. Now we see him, now we don't. Soon we won't. He's going, going, gone. How's your son doing? Ask people who think he's somewhere else. Do you miss him? Not yet, we say. At this point, acting as if the young man is gone won't work. Nor will acting as if everything is the same as it was when he was in high school. These choices are too absolute. Instead, his presence should be viewed as something in between. The boy's home, but in a new way, calling for new rules and new roles. The father adapts with humor, a good way to cope with the uncertainty of his son's status as in or out of the family. 
But perhaps the most difficult family gamble is not the physical launching children, but rather the psychological feeling of them. It is difficult to know how and when to let go of children you, we have nurtured. Like butterflies, children are crushed if we hold on to them too tightly. We are left to wrestle with a paradox. We want them to become independent, but at the same time, we want them to be like us and stay nearby. Finding this delicate balance between holding on and letting go is stressful, but nevertheless, it makes healthy family relationships possible. Consider Irene's story. Irene and her husband came to see me because of Irene's depression. Her psychiatrist had referred them to see me a couples and families therapy. For couples and families therapy, family therapy. We talked about what was happening in their marriage and family life. Irene told me that her main worry was that she was no longer a good mother. Fred shifted in his chair uncomfortably and groaned. I asked about the children. Their son, 22, and their daughter, 20, were still living at home. They complain about everything I do for them. The meals, the laundry, everything I stated. My daughter was so angry just yesterday because I pressed her blouse wrong. They used to like what I did for them. Now, no matter what I do for them, it's wrong. A few lessons later, with the entire family present, Irene took her first risk. She told her adult children to do their own laundry and ironing. She said she didn't mind doing the cooking. It was not more trouble to cook for four than it was for two. But if they didn't like what she cooked, they should simply prepare their own food or eat out rather than complain. As she feared the children were annoyed at her newfound independence. But paradoxically, as they got used to it, they admitted they admired her for no longer being a doormat. Over time, the dynamics of this family and the couple changed as Irene found her own interest. The children were still living at home, but now they took care of most of their own needs. Meanwhile, Irene and Fred worked on rebuilding a marriage that had been drained by both of their absences. His work and hers to the children. Irene's depression gradually lifted as she saw new possibilities for how to launch her children even while they were still home. 
It is not unusual for mothers in traditional family relationships to fear the kind of risk Irene took. Mothers are expected to care for their children, but no one tells them when to quit, when to revise the picture, when children never leave, or when they come back home. Mothers may fear that they aren't fulfilling their duty if they don't take care of their offspring's every need. Social norms often reinforce that fear. Irene risked changing the mother-child relationship from one of nurturance to one of equality. Without negating her love for them, she insisted that her grown children care for themselves. Irene wagered that they would still love her, not for servitude, but for simply being there. The good news in this case was that Irene's gamble paid off. Her children did, in fact, move emotionally closer to her. And this had nothing to do with laundry. She and Fred found more time for each other reviving activities they had enjoyed together in earlier years, such as fishing, dancing, and traveling. The decision to change relationships is full of risks for the person who dares to take the first step. While the impetuous impetus begins with one person, however, the new patterns ultimately have to be practiced, not just in therapy, but at home, in real life, and with the people closest to them. Improvement is gradual, two steps forward, one step back is normal. The goal is to be at ease with solutions that are imperfect. The question of who's in and who's out and how they are in or out of the family may never be completely clear. But if we can accept change, we can learn to live with the ambiguity. Families that are most successful in dealing with change adopt a willingness to compromise. Rather than rigidly defending their favored solution to the problem of an uncertain loss, family members hear one another out and remain respectful of the opinions of their loved ones. They resolve to attack the problem and not one another. Like Irene and Fred, they refuse to continue tolerating what Alan Watts calls the security of known misery. They are tired of the status quo and seek change by reaching out and breaking their isolation, interacting with others in their family and community talking, disagreeing, and compromising. Indeed, according to George Herbert Mead, we need other people to become our looking glass if we are to change perceptions within the family, using the reactions of others, their looks, their words, their emotions, and their touch. We construct new realities. Even family members deeply entrenched in their loss and resistant to change will show greater willingness to accept a revised relationship with a sick spouse or parent or an absent child 
Once they have reached out to others, overcoming the solitude of ambiguous loss is the first step on the road to healthy change. Family life, like any organic life, depends on continuous change. It's not a question of having the right answer. Indeed, with ambiguous loss, there may not be one. In the absence of a perfect solution, we must risk creating the best possible answer for the moment and know that the process of revision will never stop as long as we live. Complicated losses may seem hopeless and unresolvable, but the power to change can never be taken from us. In the end, therapists and physicians are not the ones who can prescribe how people cope with partial losses. Cultures, communities, neighborhoods, religious groups, and family of origins do that. Because people... Because people who form families together often come from different backgrounds. They may have different ideas about how or when to gamble. One indicator of such differences in couples is their language. Chance, for example, is a word that doesn't exist in Hebrew. If you want to talk about something in terms of chance, you have to resort to the word hazard. In Italy and Mexico, the word destiny is used abundantly. And in North American Indian women, women I talked with in northern Minnesota and Quebec wrote of harmony with nature and spiritual acceptance. I never heard them use the term catastrophic illness. They did not perceive as a failure the dementia of an elder who has lived a full life. Instead, they saw the deterioration of an elder as completing the cycle of life, one that should be celebrated and accepted. They had no need for the family gamble. Yet, when cultures clash, as often happens in cases of immigration, the family's understanding of absence and presence in their definition of family become more challenging. Lee's story is not uncommon in a country where there are many immigrants. She's an Asian American woman who was pregnant with her first child. Her Seattle obstetrician recommended folic acid, multivitamins, and a diet rich in calcium. Her mother in Taiwan called her weekly to tell her which folk remedies to take and what to eat. Wanting a healthy baby, Lee was torn between the old and the new. She decided to hedge her bets by honoring her mother's wishes as well as following the doctor's advice. After the baby arrived, Lee found she needed to revise some of the rituals and customs celebrated in her family so they could be shared with her new baby and husband. She said this would make her feel as if some of her extended family were present. When she left Taiwan to become an American, 
She had wanted to cut herself off from the extended family and their customs, but when she became a mother, she found that the loss of family ties was glaring. The books, the nursery rhymes, the lullabies are all wrong here, she said. So she revised and merged, continuing the songs and stories her mother had passed on to her when she was a child, but adding Mickey Mouse and other American icons to the repertoire. As her child grew, she and her husband merged aspects of Christmas, a tree, a turkey, and toys with big celebration of Chinese New Year's Day. Such integration is necessary for the many American families whose traditions are rooted in different cultures. Lee, like Irene and John, and so many others taking the family gamble, risk changing their ideas about family and tradition in order to adapt to a new situation. She was not ready to abandon entirely the rich culture of her native land, nor was she willing to raise her child outside the American culture into which the baby had been born. The compromise she decided on enabled her family to move forward with their lives, secure in knowing they could hold on to some of her family, her mother's family traditions and blend them with the new. Lee could merge two opposing ideas, keeping her mother both absent and present. And that is the goal for such experiencing, for those experiencing ambiguous loss. And that is the goal for those experiencing ambiguous loss. In the Greek language, crisis means turning point. So it is with ambiguous loss. At some point, most people suffering uncertain loss will hit bottom and then suddenly, or after a long time, shift their perceptions about the status of a family member who is physically or psychologically absent. New information will emerge or one person in the family will get tired of the status quo and decide to do something different. Because change may break family rules and traditions, everyone within the family is affected. But those who opt for change are no longer immobilized. The ambivalence and denial weaken. Family members often come to accept that the ambiguous loss is here to stay. They begin to appraise their situation, make decisions, and take action. This is the turning point. For the wives of missing American soldiers in Vietnam, the turning point came for many when they could no longer stay silent as the military had recommended. They broke the rules and picketed at the Paris Peace Talks where United States and North Vietnamese officials met after the fighting stopped. They had been told to stay silent about their husband's disappearance, which only increased their immobilization and feelings of helplessness. But some took risks, picketing the peace talks and speaking out about missing men 
Doing something, even if it broke the rules, was better than waiting and doing nothing. Ambiguous loss makes us feel incompetent. It erodes our sense of mastery and destroys our belief in the world as a fair, orderly, and manageable place. But if we are to learn to cope with uncertainty, we must realize that there are differing views of the world, even when the world is less challenged by ambiguity. In 1989, when William Buckley mentioned a troubling statistic about overpopulation to Mother Teresa, she responded, It's in God's hands. And Buckley grinned and asked her, Are you sure? These two people illustrate the extremes in how we approach problems. Buckley's typical of many of us who believe in mastering nature, where whereas Mother Teresa represents an extraordinary spiritual acceptance. Both views are essential in learning to live with ambiguous loss. If we are to turn the corner and cope with uncertain losses, we must first tamper our hunger for mastery. This is the paradox. To regain the sense of mastery when there is ambiguity about a loved one's absence or presence, we must give up trying to find the perfect solution. We must redefine our relationship to the missing person. Most important, we must realize that the confusion we are experiencing is attributable to the ambiguity rather than to something we did or neglected to do. Once we know the source of our helplessness, we are free to begin the coping process. We assess the situation, begin revising our perceptions of who is in the family and on what basis, and gradually reconstruct family roles, rules and rituals. We feel more in charge even though the ambiguity persists. The elderly wife of a man with advanced Alzheimer arrived at a research interview distraught. Her husband wanted sex all the time, she said, and this distressed her because he no longer even knew who she was. When interviewed a few months later, this same woman appeared serene. I asked her what had changed and she reported that one day the solution to her problem had suddenly occurred to her. She went into the bedroom, took off her wedding ring and put it in the jewelry box. After that, she knew she knew how to manage her husband's behavior. She no longer saw him as her husband, but simply as someone she loved and would care for. Just as she had done with her children years ago. She set boundaries, moving him to a separate bedroom and directing his daily routines. The stress level for both patient and care caregiver went down. On the day her husband died, two years later, she went to the jewelry box, took out her wedding ring and placed it back on her finger. Now I am really a widow, she said. 
not just a widow waiting to happen. This woman reached her turning point and regained control once she was able to label the ambiguity. In her words, she was a widow waiting to happen, knowing what she had lost, a husband, and what she still had, a human being she cared about, enabled to manage the enabled her to manage the situation. By her own action, she became temporarily unmarried, transforming her role from wife to caretaker. With this perpetual shift, she no longer felt overwhelmed and helpless. In my clinical work with caregiving families of people with dementia and other chronic mental illnesses, I find that individuals are stimulated to change by different things. For people who are accustomed to having some control over their lives, inside appears to help. Such people want to understand why, to penetrate the deeper meaning of an experience before they risk doing something different. But for others, insight is gained experimentally, not cognitively. For them, the family therapist Carl Whitaker was right when he said, you only know what something is after you've gone past it. People have to experience the phenomenon before they can understand it. What is clear to me is that we as clinicians must be more sensitive to individuals' differences in ways of understanding a situation if we are to avoid creating the very resistance we sometimes attribute to the people we are trying to help. For some people, mastery means controlling what is internal. Perceptions, feelings, emotions, or memories. While for others, it means controlling what is external. Other people, the situation, or the environment. When a loved one is partially absent or present, few know what to do. So those who suffer, like the elderly woman who removed her wedding ring, must find their own solutions. Internal shifts are often linked to external control. This, the first step a family therapist must take in helping people deal with their confusion is to reach their own turning point and reach their own turning point is to label what they're experiencing as an ambiguous loss. Excuse me. The first step a family therapist must take in helping people deal with their confusion and reach their own turning point is to label what they're experiencing as an ambigu ambi ambiguous loss. In my own practice, I often hear sighs of relief when people who are comforted to know 
Not only that what they are feeling has a name, but also that they are not the only ones dealing with this kind of pain. They are comforted to learn that what they are feeling is not their fault and that their stress can be managed even if the ambiguity persists. Nonetheless, something has to change. I tell family members that while feelings of confusion are normal with an ambiguous loss, maladaptions to that loss can cause problems in families. People may drink too much, eat or sleep too much, or too little, or they may become in a desperate attempt to master the situation that defies their control. Once the problem of maladaption is identified, however, they can learn more functional ways of coping with their particular ambiguous loss. Once they understand why they are stuck and that it isn't their fault, they're often more willing to change. At this point, I suggest family meetings. For the first of four to six family meetings, I gathered together in one room everyone who's considered family. A mixture of males and females from different generations is ideal because they will often express different but important viewpoints. Family members who have moved far away are often included via speakerphone. They, the hope is that these family meetings will become a regular occurrence once I am no longer working with the family. Note that the word meeting is used rather than therapy. I avoid the latter term because in cases of ambiguous loss, it is the situation, not the family, that is sick. My goal in working with the family is for all members to become aware of one another's interpretations of the experience of ambiguous loss and to determine if there is some measure of agreement about how they see the situation. If there is a strong disagreement in their perceptions of whether the family member in question is absent or present, here or gone, my main task is in the first session is to verify that differing views are normal when there is an ambiguous loss in the family. I emphasize the importance of hearing and respecting one another's perceptions in order to maintain close relationships during a period of ambiguity. As the family meets and talks together in the next few sessions, conflict disagreements invariably occur and there is often a tendency to want to stop meeting. I encourage family members to continue since this is their chance to learn how to negotiate and problem solve together in spite of their distressing ambiguous loss. 
Coping never happens in a vacuum. Loved ones and friends can provide a mirror for one another's perceptions and behaviors so that through continued discussions, what is irretrievably lost and what is not becomes clearer to everyone. People are no longer immobilized. They can mourn. Coming together and talking allows a necessary exchange of information among the healthy family members. But what about the patient? In cases of chronic illness, the sick family members, also confused and distressed, terminally ill patients say that they know they are slipping away and wonder if they are still valued, still a part of the family. They too feel guilt and shame as a result of their inability to be fully present. Thus, I think it is important to include the patient in at least some of the family meetings. Even Alzheimer patients can detect when the family's acting as if they're already gone, and they too need an opportunity to express themselves. One patient described by his family in his presence as capable of talking only nonsense, protested and told us that he was sure his wife was planning to divorce him. His wife said we shouldn't listen to him because he no longer made sense, but in fact she was planning to institutionalize him. His family, which struggled with addiction issues on top of Alzheimer's, used the meetings to clear up for themselves and for the patient whatever he was in or out of the family whether he was in or out of the family. <coughs> Excuse me. In this case, it turned out he was out. His children were busy and his wife wanted her freedom so she could continue to gamble. Although there was no divorce, his, his detachment from the family was real. The patient is still living and because his dementia has not deepened, he helps other patients in the institution that he now calls home. During our meetings, I encourage family members to gather as much information as they can about their specific ambiguous loss. I encourage them to be aggressive, to insist on getting even professional literature since almost every family these days has someone in it who can translate technical information for the rest of the family. Families coping with an illness can find journals in libraries, write letters to request consultations with specialists, and contact other families with similar experiences. <coughs> Excuse me. Families dealing with a physical loss can contact the police. Surf the internet, hire detectives, form networks of those suffering in similar laws, and fight to change laws. If the situation involves a soldier who has disappeared, loved ones can journey their distant places, build memorials, visit museums and cemeteries, or return to the killing fields. The act of seeking information eases the stress of ambiguity. 
Once the process is exhausted and no more information is available, that too becomes information and helps people conclude we have done all we can. It is also very important for family members attending the meetings to learn to recognize their emotions, anger, pain, sadness, shame, guilt, joy, relief, and terror. Rules for families of origin as well as the larger society often influence which emotions are permissible for men and women and for girls and boys and how the expression of those feelings might manifest itself. Some people pray, some drink or otherwise sedate themselves. Others connect with friends and family or warmth for warmth and support. Still others look to technology for help. Using the internet to obtain information and to find help. In family meetings, I help everyone to express their feelings in non-destructive ways. Ask for tolerance for one another's differences. From my perspective, this is most effectively accomplished experimentally. I ask family members to tell stories about how they celebrate special holidays, family rituals, stories about how their lives have changed since the ambiguous loss, and stories of how they survived to overcome difficulties. They are encouraged to review photos, videos, mementos, letters, and diaries, as well as other symbols of the absent person. Collectively, And through the use of narratives, family members begin to recognize and grieve what has been lost. But at the same time, they become clear about which aspects of their loved one are still present. Sometimes there are surprising revelations or bitter disagreements during the conversations. But most often with coaching, the family members work it out. If not, I ask them if they would like to shift to more traditional family therapy in order to work on specific issues. In the case of the family who closed out the Alzheimer patient, they were not willing to do this, nor were they willing to seek treatment for their addictions. Change was too frightening for them So instead, they excluded the patient from their family. Family meetings are a useful tool for coping with present and future ambiguous losses. Encourage families to make such meetings a part of their lives together because as people grow older and health status shifts, Questions of who is in charge, who performs which roles, which rules need to change, and how family rituals and celebrations can be observed or adapted invariably arise. Continuous structuring is essential for any family to function and survive over time, but it is particularly important under the added stress of ambiguous loss. Well, I will leave it off here and be thankful that uh, I'm not the only one experiencing ambiguous loss. Many people experience it in many different ways. And we certainly pray and hope 
that uh, we understand that this crisis that most of us are experiencing possibly right this moment has a way of overcoming itself and solutions can be found in different ways. Hallelujah. Leave it at that. Grandma B signing off. Continuing our Shabbat reading with Judges 13.2. There was a man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manok. His wife was barren, childless. The angel of Adonai appeared to the woman and said to her, Listen, you are barren, you haven't had a child, but you will conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink any wine or other intoxicating liquor, and don't eat anything unclean. For indeed, you will conceive and bear a son. No razor is to touch his head, because the child will be a Nazir for God from the womb. Moreover, he will begin to rescue Israel from the power of the Philistines. The woman came and told her husband. She said, A man of God came to me. His face was fearsome, like that of an angel of God. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, Listen, you will conceive and bear a son. So now don't drink any vine or other intoxicating liquor. And don't eat anything unclean, because the child will be in his ear for God, from the womb until the day he dies. Then Manok prayed to Adonai, Please, Adonai, let the man of God you sent come again to us, and teach us what we should do for the child who will be born. God paid attention to what Manok said. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But her husband, Manok, wasn't with her. The woman hurried and ran to tell her husband, Here, that man, the one who came to me the other day, he's come again. Manok got up, followed his wife, went to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? He answered, I am. Manok asked, now, when you said what you said comes true, what are the guidelines for raising a child? What should be done for him? The angel of Adonai said to Manoah, the woman should take care to do everything I said to, to her. She shouldn't eat anything that comes from a grapevine. She shouldn't drink wine or other intoxicating liquor, and she shouldn't eat anything unclean. She should do everything I ordered her to do. Manak or Manoah said to the angel of Adonai, please stay with us a bit longer so that we can cook a young goat for you. And the angel of Adonai said to Manoah, 
even if I do stay, I don't, I won't eat your food. And if you prepare a burnt offering, you must offer it to Adonai. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of Adonai. Manoah said to the angel of Adonai, tell us your name so that when your words come true, we can honor you. And the angel of Adonai answered him, why are you asking about my name? It is wonderful. Manoah took the kid and the grain offering and offered them on the rock to Adonai. Then with Manoah and his wife looking on, the angel did something wonderful. As the flame went up toward the sky from the altar, the angel of Adonai went up in the flame from the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw it, they fell to the ground on their faces. But the angel of Adonai did not appear again to Manoah or his wife. When Manoah realized it had been the angel of Adonai, then Manoah realized it had been the angel of Adonai, Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die because we've seen God. But the wife said to him, If Adonai had wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from us. He would have shown us all this. He wouldn't have shown us all this or told us such things at this time. The woman bore a son and called him Samson. The child grew and Adonai blessed him. The spirit of Adonai began to stir in him, and he was in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Estal. Acts 18, 18. Then we have Acts 18, 18. Shaul remained for some time, then he said goodbye to the brothers and sailed off to Syria. After having his hair cut short in Sanchipria, because he had taken a vow with him were Priscilla and Aquila. And then we have Acts 21, 17 through 22, 29. Okay, Acts. 21.17 In Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Shaul and the rest of us went in to Jacob, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Shaul described in detail each of the things God had done among the Gentiles through his efforts. On hearing it, they praised God, but they also said to him, You see, brother, how many tens of thousands of believers there are among the Judeans, and they are all zealots for the Torah. Now what they have been told about you is that you are teaching all the Jews living among the Goyim to apostolize from Moses, telling them not to have a circumcision for their sons and not to follow the traditions. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come 
So do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them with you, be purified with them, and pay the expenses connected with having their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is nothing to these rumors which they have heard about you, but that on the contrary, you yourself stay in line and keep the Torah. However, in regard to the Goyim, who have come to trust in Yeshua. We all joined in writing them a letter with our decision that they should abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from fornication. The next day, Shaul took them in, purified himself along with them, and entered the temple to give notice of when the period of purification would be finished, and the offering would have been made for each of them. The seven days were almost up when some unbelieving Jews from the provenance of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up all the crowd and grabbed him. Men of Israel, help, they shouted. This is the man who goes everywhere teaching everyone things against the people, against the Torah, and against this place. And now he has even brought some goyen into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus and Ephemus from Ephesus in the city with him and assumed that Shaul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and people came running from all over. They seized Shaul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. But while they were attempting to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman battalion that all Jerusalem was in turmoil. Immediately, he took officers and soldiers and charged down upon them. As soon as they saw the commander, they quit beating Shaul. Then the commander came up, arrested him, and ordered him to be tied up with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. Everyone in the crowd shouted something different. So since he couldn't find out what had happened because of the uproar, he ordered him brought to the barracks. When Shaul got to the steps, he actually had to be carried by the soldiers because the mob was so wild. The crowd kept following and screaming, Kill him! Kill him! As Shaul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, Is it all right if I say something to you? The commander said, You know Greek? Say, aren't you that Egyptian who tried to start a revolution a while back and led 4,000 armed terrorists out into the desert? said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of an important city, and I ask your permission to let me speak to the people. Having received permission, Shaul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When they finally became still, he addressed them in Hebrew. Brothers and fathers, listen to me as I make my defense before you now. 
When they heard him speaking to them in Hebrew, they settled down more. So he continued, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city and trained at the feet of Gamaliel in every detail of the Torah of our forefathers. I was a zealot for God, as all of you are today. I persecuted to death the followers of this way, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The Kohen Haggadah and the whole Sanhedrin can also testify to this. Indeed, after receiving letters from them to their colleagues in Damascus, I was on my way there in order to arrest ones in that city too and bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus around noon, suddenly a brilliant light from heaven flashed all around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Shaul, Shaul, why do you keep persecuting me? I answered, Sir, who are you? I am Yeshua from Nazareth, he said to me, and you are persecuting me. Those who are with me did see the light, but they didn't hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up, go to Damascus, and there you will hold, you will be told about everything that has been laid out for you to do. I had been blinded by the brightness of the light, so my companions led me by the hand into Damascus. A man named Hananiah, an observant follower of the Torah, who was highly regarded by the entire Jewish community there, came to me, stood by me and said, Brother Shaul, see again. And at that very moment, I recovered my sight and saw him. He said, The God of our fathers determined in advance that you should know his will. See the Zitzi and hear his voice, because you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So now what are you waiting for? Get up, immerse yourself, and have your sins washed away as you call on his name. After I had returned to Jerusalem, it happened that as I was praying in the temple, I went into a trance. I saw Yeshua. Hurry, he said to me, get out of Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept what you have to say about me. I said, Lord, they know themselves that in every synagogue I used to imprison and flog those who trusted in you. Also, that when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing there too in full agreement. I was even looking after the clothes of the one who were killing him. But he said, get going, for I'm going to send you far away. Go to the Goyim. They had been listening to him up to this point, but now they shouted at the top of their lungs, rid the earth of such a man. He is not fit to live. They were screaming, waving their clothes and throwing dust into the air. So the commander, commander ordered him brought into the barracks and directed that he be interrogated and whipped. 
in order to find out why they were yelling at him like this. But as they were stretching him out with thongs to be flogged, Shaul said to the captain standing by, Is it legal for you to whip a man who is a Roman citizen and hasn't even had a trial? When the captain heard that, he went and reported it to the commander. So you realize what you're doing. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander came and said to Shaul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. And the commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a seizable sum of money, but I was born to it, Shaul said. At once the men who had been about to interrogate him drew back from him, and the commander was afraid too, because he realized that he had put this man who was a Roman citizen in chains. Thank you, Father God, for helping us to continue our parasha. It's with great admiration that we humble ourselves before you today. As we know, all good things come from you. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Amen. I am...